This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know, from your favorite books and the world in which they live, to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story, Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on Sirius XM Book Radio Channel 80. I'm Rose Fox. I'm a reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly, bringing you the very best of book talk. We're coming to you directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. We're here for you and we want to answer your questions, so send them to us at pwradio at publishersweekly.com or tweet them to pubweeklyradio, that's radio on Twitter. Today we'll be talking with Charlene Harris, author of the Sookie Stackhouse series, which inspired the HBO series True Blood. Then, PW Reviews editor Sam Slayton will tell us what's new in the world of mental health. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. So I have to start off with fiction, because our number one title is Dead Ever After by Charlene Harris. And you picked that as? Number one. And what did it come in as? Number one. Oh, very good, Rose. <laughs> uh, so it's number, number one with a bullet, as they say. It sold over 80,000 copies in its first week. It's doing extremely well. Uh, and I'm very much looking forward to breaking that news to Charlene when we talk with her. Oh, I know. That's always exciting when we could do that. (laughs) That's going to be a good time. Um, Some other interesting uh, new titles on the fiction list. Uh, Last week's guest, John Sanford with Silk and Prey, comes in at number three. Great. Well done, John. Wow. And we definitely figured that that would come out fairly close to the top. Uh, It's a popular series, and it's his 23rd book in the series featuring Lucas Davenport. So for those of you who, who missed our interview last week, it was pretty fascinating stuff. And John Sanford does a really interesting job of writing thillers that he says are aimed, you know, calculated to mm-hmm. appeal to both men and women. Uh, right. you know, really uh, a, a broad audience. There's there's guns and there's shopping. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So yeah. whatever your interests yeah. are, uh, you might want to pick that one up. So sure. that's Silk and Prey by John Sanford coming in at number three on our fiction list. And I wanted to talk about the number five title as well, because we don't usually see these uh, sort of inspirational books coming up so high on the fiction list. But this one is called A Step of Faith by Richard Paul Evans. Uh, it's an, an installment of the Walk series, and it's it's very much a spiritual book. Uh, it's it's got a philosophical underpinning. Uh, it's about an advertising executive who's contemplating death and dying, and this the, the book is written as his journal, mm-hmm. and so it it details all of his painful memories and how he copes with coming to the end of his life. Uh, but it really moves along very quickly, uh, and it's it's a very complex story with a lot of philosophy. In it, and a lot of spirituality in it. It's true. We we really don't see that coming up on the non. I'm sorry, on the on general fiction list. Uh, this kind of book. I mean, they they might be on, on other lists, but but coming this high, is pretty noteworthy. Yeah, and you know, he's he's written other books like Miles to Go and Grace mm-hmm. and The Christmas Box, and you know, this is right. really clearly he's 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 found his genre, and he just he writes in this in this inspirational niche. And I I always find it really intriguing when these authors just know what they want to do and they do it, and they clearly build up a big audience. Well, and it's and I and I do like it when we are able to see on these lists uh, books such as this that come up and. I have something similar on the nonfiction list. Oh, do uh, did tell. you have a, Do you have another one on no, fiction? No, no, go there? ahead. Well, it's just something. It's another inspirational book that is quite different from others. I mean, meaning this person is not a motivational speaker, uh, not a psychologist, not a psychiatrist. This one is a duck hunter. And uh, <laughs> yes, yes. Well, I the, wasn't expecting that. No, no, exactly. And the book is called Happy, 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 My Life and Legacy as the Duck Commander. Yes, I, I know. Completely surprising. Our listeners and, can't see the look on my face. But they probably have about the same look. Like, really? And, and so, <laughs> and so, so, so apparently, so this is coming from the A and E program, very popular, called Duck Dynasty, mm-hmm. about this uh, this this older bearded man, uh, Phil Robertson, who's uh, the patriarch of the, of this of this of this uh, Robertson clan and uh, creator of Duck Commander Duck Calls. So so he's created all these duck calls for hunters. And in this book, he talks about how duck hunting and making duck calls has kind of uh, saved him from a life, a roving, bar-drinking life that he had. And 
this book pops up at number one. So anyway, at number I'm sorry. one on our nonfiction. Yes, list? yes, it does. That is incredible. Yeah. So, so I, I love that his tagline is "Faith, Family, and Ducks" in that order. Yes, in that all, exactly. in that order, very exactly. important. You exactly. wouldn't want ducks to come before faith, right, right, <laughs> or before your family, I suppose. Yeah. But how fascinating! That is not someone I would have picked as you know, America's twenty-first century spiritual leader, yeah. and yet you know here here he is. So, and here he is. So is this just a, a memoir that, that's about his his life with yeah, ducks? Exactly, exactly, and about how he came to it. That um, is fascinating. Uh, uh, co-written with uh, Mark Schlabach, uh, I think, is the uh, is the person. So, <laughs> so there you have it. So, what else is hot on our well, nonfiction list? Uh, I just have one more, and this is Mika Brzezinski writing with uh, Diane Smith. Mika, she also wrote "Knowing Your Value," uh, talk show host, mm-hmm. and this book is called "Obsessed: America's Food Addiction and My Own." So, she's writing with Diane Smith about her food addiction, but also Diane Smith talks about her own, and then they weave in uh, research. And we say in our review, effortlessly shifting from a, uh, from a biochemical focus to a spectrum of other harmful inputs. With dips into food philosophy along the way, the book addresses matters like self-soothing with food following trauma. And this is obviously something that resonates with a lot of readers. It's come in at number 15. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, we've seen uh, you know, several other books by uh, Mika all things at once and knowing your value. So that's that's one of, that's the other noteworthy nonfiction, new and nonfiction on our list. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking about next week's bestseller list for Publishers Weekly, yes. just powered by Nielsen Bookscan. I just had a couple of other fiction titles I wanted to call out very briefly, mm-hmm. if we have a moment for sure, that. Sure, sure, um, definitely. It's a bonanza for mystery readers this week. We have Jean Le Carré's latest book. It's his 23rd novel, A Delicate Truth, which is number seven on the fiction list. And also Robert B. Parker's Wonderland, which is coming in at number nine. Now, that is not written by the late Robert B. Parker. It's written by Ace Atkins, mm. but it's authorized by the Robert B. Parker estate. Oh. Um, and wow. we, we say it's pretty solid. Solid. Yeah. Uh, but these these two books are definitely for old school mystery fans who've been reading for a while. And Le Carre obviously is going to be a spy thriller, very cloak and dagger. Mm-hmm. That's what he's known right. for. And we call it uh, in the Publishers Weekly Review, we say it's an entertainingly labyrinthian, if overly polemical novel. Oh. I, have, I have a friend who, who read it and he said he felt the beginning was very strong and the ending, not so mm. much. Right. Uh, and our reviewer agrees, uh, says this novel feels as if the issue of who's bad and who's good is too neatly sewn up and it veers dangerously close to farce and caricature. Wow. And so that's Le Carré, A right. Delicate Truth. And then uh, Robert B. Parker's Wonderland features Spencer, who is Parker's hero of many, many detective mm-hmm. novels over the years. Uh, and uh, he has a sidekick, who's uh, a recovering alcoholic, Zebulon Sixkill, uh, introduced in the last book that Parker wrote before his death in 2010. Uh, and so this, this is really, this book is focusing on him and his potential to drive the plot uh, and we say that Atkins has a, a real ability to perfectly mimic the originals, which will please diehard fans hungry for familiar pleasures. Oh. And this is Robert Parker's... Right, exactly. Robert B. Parker's Wonderland, right. which is number nine on our fiction list. And it is a Spencer wow. novel, which is... I, I don't even know how many Spencer novels there have been, but it's been dozens, certainly. Wow. Yeah. And finally, I wanted to note a book that's on our young adult... Uh, bestseller list, our young adult and children's bestseller list, uh, coming in at number two, which is The Fifth Wave by Rick Yancey. And the reason I want to bring this up is because we're going to be talking with him next week. Ah, very good. That's right. So um, I'm looking forward to having him on and talking about his Mm best-selling young adult novel. Um, This one is the opener to a gripping science fiction trilogy about an Earth decimated by an alien invasion. And the author fully embraces the genre while resisting its more sensational tendencies. Though, rest assured, there are firefights and explosions aplenty. So if you're just in it for blowing stuff up, you've got this. But uh, there's also a a real interesting plot and a question of what it means to be human, which is often a theme in the best science fiction. We gave it a starred review, The Fifth Wave by Rick Yancey, number two on our children's and young adult list. Oh, I'm looking forward to talking with him next week. Yeah, I think that'll be very interesting. Great.
I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, and we are uh, talking about uh, next week's bestseller list. is powered by Nielsen BookScan, and right now we're going to turn to uh, books that we think might uh, be on the list, or at least uh, books that are publishing this week that might have a good chance of making it on the list next week. I, and, I was one yeah. for two last week. I called Charlene Harris at number one, but that was easy. That 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 was really not hard to predict. They printed a million copies the first right. run. I mean, that's true. It's, that, that, that's, that's not something you do unless you're confident about a book. However, I also said that Benjamin Percy's Red Moon was going to be in our top 40, and it's not. It's not, not anywhere, even in the top 50. Not on the top 50. And uh, similarly, The Hungry Girl 200 Under 200. Uh, this is uh, Lisa Lillian's book, uh, Just Desserts, mm-hmm. uh, with a 500,000 copy print. Uh, I thought it was going to be the top 20 somewhere there, as, as many of these um, big uh, food books mm-hmm. can be, especially uh, paper, you know, fresh, you know, trade paper books. And, and that didn't show up on the list either. So. At all? Wow. No, not at all. Mark, we're losing our touch. I know, I know. Maybe we'll get it back at some point. Uh, so, um, so looking a little bit to the future, mm-hmm. uh, we've got uh, American Gun. Uh, this is Chris Kyle. Uh, he's the best-selling author of American Sniper. Uh, he was uh, right. killed uh, earlier this year um, as he was trying to help another uh, vet. Uh, uh, the vet turned the gun on him. And this is a book that he had started a couple of years ago. Uh, and it was picked up uh, and, and finished by William Doyle. And in this book, uh, again, it's called American Gun, A History of the U.S. in Ten Firearms. I mean, this is, this is a book hot, hot on debates on, on everyone's mind. I, I mean, this topic it addresses. And so he's going to talk about the history of the U.S. with, uh, as he talks about the American long rifle, the Spencer repeater, the Colt 45 revolver, Winchester rifle, the Springfield 1903 rifle, the Thompson submachine guns, all these guns as they changed history. So hmm. they're announcing a uh, 500,000 copy print of this book. And I'm assuming, especially given his previous bestseller, American uh, Sniper, and his name, uh, this will be on the top 20. Oh, easily. If not the top 10. I think, I think you could top probably 10. call it for the top Let's 10. Let's do top 10. All right, good. Now, I, I have it very easy for fiction this week because Dan Brown has a new book coming out, Problem Solved. <laughs> Number one. Got it. You've got it. <laughs> Inferno, a novel, is coming out. Uh, in fact, it's out May, May 14th, so it's just out. Um, they're printing 4 million copies oh, for the first run. Gosh. So if you wanted a, a, a scant uh, first edition to pass on to your kids for them to sell on whatever is the equivalent of eBay in the year 2065. Wow. Uh, there will be 4 million people doing the same thing. Uh, 4 million copies at 29.95 each. That's, wow. uh, that's a lot of money for Doubleday and for Dan Brown. Oh, it's amazing. So I, I don't think it's any challenge to call that for number one, but the real question is uh, what's going to come in after that. And I don't know that I have a, I have a good guess at that i mean there there are a couple books um i could call magician's end by raymond feist which is uh the the 30th and final book in a very long-running epic fantasy series uh it's that's been going on a long time and uh, there are a lot of people eager to see how it ends on the other hand i haven't heard anyone actually talking about it and feist's popularity has kind of leveled off or maybe dropped a bit over his last few books so uh i don't i don't know that i'd feel terribly confident about that i think it'll be really interesting to see uh which new books hit the bestseller list next week but i think we're actually more likely to see a lot of continuation from this week sure. uh, charlene harris will probably stay on for another week uh, yeah. these these mystery novels and thrillers that just came out this week will probably still be on there next week right. exactly and I, dan brown above them all it's true now i do have one novel though that the khalid uh Hosseini book oh yes I'm uh, and the mountains echo so when when you had said that dan brown they were uh, anticipating a print run or announcing a print run of four million uh, that just <laughs> it was amazing that blew this one out of the water and i thought that this was a big printing of 1.5 million Right. Now, we all know him from the Kite, render, uh, kite Runner and A Thousand Splendid Sons. Um, in our review, we say Husseini's third novel follows a close-knit but off-separated Afghan family through love, wars, and losses more painful than death. Um, this will definitely show up in the top ten. Mm-hmm. He's just one of these writers who's, who people are going to read. And with a publisher backing it with $1.5 it's going to show up in the top ten. But what we do say 
is, uh, in our review, uh, the beautiful writing full of universal truths of loss and identity makes each section a jewel, even if the bigger picture, which eventually expands to include Paris' life in France, sometimes feels disjointed. So mm. uh, that's our take on, the, uh, on his book. Do out uh, next week. Well, it's coming out the 21st, so we may not have numbers on it for next week's show. You're absolutely right. Um, yeah. But we'll definitely have them by the end of May or early June, so we'll, we'll check back. And you're, you're predicting it for number 10, for somewhere in the top yeah, 10? Yeah, definitely. Most definitely. Excellent. Well, we'll keep an eye out for that. Great. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Charlene Harris is going to tell us about bringing her Suki Stackhouse series to a close with Dead Ever After, which we just said is number one on next number week's one. Publishers Weekly bestseller list. So we'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Charlene Harris on the line. Her new novel, Dead Ever After, wraps up the Suki Stackhouse books, also known as the Southern Vampire Mystery Series, which inspired the HBO show True Blood. Thanks so much for joining us, Charlene. It's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Well, first of all, I want to congratulate you for next week's PW Fiction bestseller list. We'll have Dead Ever After at number one. Oh, thank you for telling me. That's so exciting. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's one of the best parts of this job is that we get to break news like that. So right. congratulations. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so, so clearly your fans are really eager to find out what happens to their favorite characters. And the series has been going on for quite a long time. This is book 13. Uh, do you think that your fans are going to be satisfied with how you ended the series? Oh, no. Uh, <laughs> a, significant, a significant portion of them won't be and have already let me know about that. So what led you to, to, uh, to boldly strike out on, on your own direction here rather than taking direction from the fans? Because obviously you know what they want, and you also know that you're not giving it to them. Well, I don't write by committee. Mm -hmm. uh, this is not a democracy. This is, a, you know, a tyranny maybe. <laughs> uh, but you have to write the book of your heart, and I don't think it's right for a writer to take fan votes on what she should write that's that's uh being bullied i think but you have you have a lot of interaction with your fans is, is that difficult these days you know, with uh your fans are very able to communicate with you reach out to you through amazon reviews or maybe they send you email or they write on your facebook page um, and they, they let you know what they're thinking <laughs> they do i don't read amazon reviews anymore mm -hmm. because they're anonymous and i don't think that's a valid comment i put my name on everything i do i read what my own website i read reader comments on there mm -hmm. and on my public facebook page i try to at least skim through the comments there so how do you keep from being influenced by all of that input well i think if i had been a less established writer with um you know i've had years of experience writing and I'm pretty determined about what I want to do and what I think is right. I, it makes it better able to resist the pressure, I think. Now, did you always have this particular ending in mind for the series, or did it kind of develop as you went along? I pretty much had this ending in mind, maybe not down to the last detail, but the general outlines of it, yes. Uh, I've known since probably about the second book how the series would end. Wow, and you've kept it to yourself all this time. Yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> well, so going back to the very beginning, I mean, this this has been seven years now with this series? Thirteen. Thirteen, my gosh. How did the character of Suki Stackhouse come about? It started when I wanted to write something completely different. I had a career in traditional mysteries that was not terribly successful, and I wanted to switch genres, and I thought I would like to write something that would appeal cross-genre, mm -hmm. which then was almost almost unheard of. Mm -hmm. The only person doing anything like that was Laurel K. Hamilton. And it came to me that it would be interesting to write about a woman who was trying to date a vampire and the consequences to her in her own society and in vampire society and how that would change the structure of the United States mm. it, politically. It's just been, uh, that was the grain of the idea that carried me through. 
Now, I want to ask you, what is the interest in vampire and how did that come about? In vampires in general? I, it wasn't that I was so interested in vampires. It was and, that I was interested in her dating someone outside her own species. Mm. So you were raised in the Mississippi Delta town of Tunica. Is that how you pronounce it? That's right. Tunica, Mississippi. And how did that influence or inspire the Stackhouse books? Well, certainly it led to my career as a writer in many kind of unexpected ways because uh, I was very imaginative and I grew up out in the country, Mm -hmm. uh, really out in the country, and books were my favorite companion. I thought being a writer was the most wonderful thing anybody could be. Now, does this does does the uh, setting uh, for your novels resemble Tunica in any way? Oh no, not particularly. The books are set in northern Louisiana, uh, probably in a way most small towns are alike in uh, in some aspects. But this is a a town in Louisiana, and the culture is somewhat different. I'm Mark Rattel, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with author Charlene Harris about her book, Dead Ever After. And we are talking about the character Suki Stackhouse and the setting of the book. And I want to go back a little bit to vampires. I, I'm, I think I'm, uh, you know, I'm really impressed how, you, you, as you said, you've, you've, you've said you, you wanted Suki to date someone out of her species. And this va- a day of vampires came about. And, you've, and you wanted it. You, I mean, this was a conscious effort for you to, to talk about maybe world politics or, or at least world uh, situations with, with, the, uh, with uh, pitting Suki within or against the vampires? Yes, I wanted to say some things about society mm-hmm. using the vampires as a convenient symbol. And and what was it in the first book? I mean, was there something that you remember that was the catalyst for all of this? Well, I guess um, when I wrote the first book, I didn't really think I'd get to write any more. <laughs> I had no idea. It took my agent two years to sell the first book. It got hmm. turned down many times, many times. Really? Um, yeah. Oh, absolutely, yes. Because almost no one was doing anything like it at the time. Mm-hmm. They were very concerned about where to shelve it in the bookstore. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, I, I, you know, I think that problem has kind of been solved now. Well, sure. but practically created your own your own shelf you have, you have the paranormal <laughs> shelf which didn't exist before that's right that's right it's been uh it's been really interesting to see that develop and uh it's been good to be in kind of the vanguard of that and tell us about when you were first approached by the tv series writers for for this and 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 then tell us what's what it's like to work with the folks at hbo i mean you must have been surprised well i no, actually, uh, I had already had one option on the books, and when that option lapsed, I had three offers. But, of course, the most interesting offer was from Alan Ball. Mm-hmm, sure. And I had some conversations with him during which he convinced me that he was the right person to adapt the books to a different medium. He He knew what I was doing. He understood it. He was a Southern guy, too, sure. and we just seemed to get along very well. And, of course, Alan Ball's the uh, director, producer, creator of Six Feet Under. Yes. Right, right. And tell us a little bit about how the adaptation process works. I think a lot of our listeners aren't very familiar with how books become movies or become television shows. Well, Alan and his writers wrote all the episodes. Uh, I don't participate in the writing of the show since... Really, I have a hard time filling my own writing obligations. Uh, but they took the first book, and the first season is is a fairly faithful adaptation of the first book. Mm-hmm. The second season, less uh, less adhering to the plot line of the book. Uh, until now, the show and the book are very different, very different indeed. Some characters are alive in the show that are dead in the books. Uh, you know, there are just countless instances of, of it being different from the books. But that is actually okay with me because 
I think Alan and his staff of writers are very talented, and they have their own vision of where they want these characters to go. So in that case, the ending that you have for the series, um, for the books, uh, might not be the ending of the series on the TV show. Oh, I would say the chances are very good that it will not be the same ending. <laughs> right. right. That's interesting. So, so do you think that that keeps people you know, both watching and reading to see the differences, or, or do you think each, each sort of has its own fan base? There are a lot of crossover fans. A lot of people came to the books through the TV show, and a lot of people went to the show through the books. Mm -hmm. Of course, there are fans who don't care about more than one version of that story, and mm -hmm. that's okay, too. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with author Charlene Harris about Dead Ever After, the 13th and final Suki Stackhouse book. Now, I, I want to uh, steer away a little bit uh, to a different different question. Uh, you're very closely involved with your Episcopal Church. Would you mind telling us a little bit about how religion influences your books? Because it is a very strong theme. There's even a, a whole website, Jesus and Bonton, which is uh, just about how, how religion appears in these books. So tell us a bit about that. Really? Yes, there really? is. There's, there's a whole blog for it. Dang, I'll have to tell my <laughs> about that. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's really amazing. Um, well, it seemed to me that in a lot of the books I read, the protagonist never had one thought about any belief system. Mm -hmm. And I found that very hard to... It just seems to me everyone believes something. There's some belief system, and mm -hmm. I thought it had to be an integral part of the story I was telling, because Suki is a, you know, she's a Christian. She's got uh, a lot of beliefs that coincide with mine, and some that don't, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. it's a part of her world. And there are definitely times she questions her faith in the books. Absolutely, because I guess being a good adherent of almost any religion is really hard. Um, right. And it's especially hard to adhere to Christianity when your life is being threatened and you have to make choices. And and how does your religious community handle you writing about topics like witchcraft and the undead and um, the very positive attitude that you have towards homosexuality? Well, luckily, I'm an Episcopalian because we're pretty uh, <laughs> we're pretty tolerant on all those all those issues. Mm -hmm. And um, <laughs> It's one of the more liberal churches in America in a lot of ways. So they've all been very good about it. I mean, these are not people who think that you shouldn't read Harry Potter because there's witchcraft in it. I mean, that's right. obviously, you know, kind of absurd. <laughs> um, the, because books are about more than what's included in them. You know, if there may be witchcraft, but there may also be a great story about faithfulness between friends and being loyal to your beliefs. Mm -hmm. Now, you've written four series of novels and a lot of short stories, and you've also edited some anthologies with Tony Kellner. Uh, do you have a, a favorite hat to wear? Is there something in there that you particularly like, or is it all very satisfying? I like to take turns with the things I do because it keeps me fresh. Mm -hmm. I love to write a short story every now and then. I love to edit at least once a year, because it really keeps your eyes sharper mm -hmm. for the problems in your own books, I think. Mm -hmm. I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with author Charlene Harris as she's driving through the pounding rain in <laughs> Oklahoma. And that's the, uh, what, you, what you hear from in the background there is the rain on the car. And Charlene, I hope you're not driving yourself. Oh, oh, gosh, no, no. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> driving. So we're talking about her new novel, Dead Ever After, which is the final Suki Stackhouse novel. And uh, we've also been talking about the other things you've been doing, the series of novels, short stories, and several anthologies that you've edited. Now, what do you see the difference from editing as, as opposed to writing? I mean, what, what pleasures do you get out of the anthologies, and what do you hope to bring about in the anthologies? Well, for one thing, when Tony and I started talking about uh, doing anthologies, and it was Marty Greenberg that approached us on that, uh, may he rest in peace, we started to talk about trying to encourage cross-genre writing. So we asked some 
strict mystery writers, some urban fantasy writers, some more romance, paranormal writers, to write about a particular theme. And it's been very interesting, the wonderful variation on that theme we come up with. Like it might be werewolves and Christmas. Mm-hmm. And we just get these <laughs> wonderful stories. It's just incredible how, how rich the experience can be. Plus, readers read these stories. They look up other things the writer has done, and they see that there are good writers in other genres. So I think it's been really good, both for writers and readers, to have this experience. Do you foresee a lot of continued crossing of genres? I mean, obviously, that's that's been the theme the last few years. We've seen a, a whole bunch of crossovers and, and new genres springing up. Do you think that's that's going to continue, and seeing writers kind of stretching themselves by writing outside of the genres they've been in? I hope so. It's a good way to stretch boundaries and uh, test the rules. There are all kinds of rules for writing mysteries, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are just as many rules for writing traditional science fiction or hard science fiction. And I think it can be interesting to to mix them up and, and see what you can come up with. It should be a challenge for the writer and entertainment for the reader. So are we going to see a hard science fiction novel from you next? That would be interesting. <laughs> it, it would be, but it, it probably won't happen because I'm just, I don't know, I'm, I just don't have that that thought in my head now. But my next series will be uh, quite different from the Sookie books. That was actually going to be my next question. This is, this is the first time in, I think, almost 20 years that you don't have an active, ongoing series. So, so what's next on your agenda? Well, actually, uh, I'm starting another series. It's uh, got elements of the paranormal, but it's told in a different way uh, in the third person. Mm-hmm. It has some male points of view. It's more of an ensemble than uh, than the story of one person. Right. And so and I have that ongoing. I'm writing a graphic novel with Christopher Golden. Oh, that's which exciting. Is, uh, it is. It's really fun and different. Wow. Uh, the first volume in that got moved back to, I think, January. It's called Cemetery Girl. Mm-hmm. And the art is just wonderful. Oh, that's great. No, I, Golden does a lot of terrific work. I didn't even know that you were getting into graphic novels. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about it. It's a whole different way of writing, and Chris has been kind enough to uh, kind of guide me into it. And I think the the storyline is really a lot of fun. I think readers are going to enjoy it. And can you tell us a little bit about your next series beyond the the ensemble cast? Is it is it a mystery? Is it a more paranormal? It's both those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've signed for three books in this. I'm, I, we'll see how I stand when those three books are done. Mm-hmm. But it's set at a, a mysterious pawn shop at a crossroads in Texas in a tiny town that's mostly boarded up but has a few businesses still going. Uh, and the, all the inhabitants of this town are characters in the book. But I've I've definitely seen a lot of small town books doing very well recently. I also cover romance in addition to the fantasy and science fiction. So it sounds like you may have another winner on your hands. Oh, I certainly hope so. I hope people enjoy it. Well, we've been talking with Charlene Harris, and you can find Dead Ever After, the 13th and final Suki Stackhouse novel, in stores right now, or at least you can if they haven't all been bought already. Charlene, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me today. I've enjoyed talking to both of us. I'm Rose Fox. Thanks, Mark. Thank you. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Reviews editor Sam Slayton will tell us about some interesting new mental health books. Stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from one of the editors at Publishers Weekly, and today reviews editor Sam Slayton is here with us to tell us about some interesting new books that dig deep into people's brains. Thank you so much for joining us, Sam. Thanks for having me, guys. So tell us a little bit about what you have lined up. It's an exciting time in the field of psychiatry. It is. I didn't realize how exciting it was until I started kind of digging into this for this this segment. I mean, I've been seeing a lot of a lot of books come through the office over the past few months in preparation for the, uh, or time to coincide with the publication of the DSM-5, which is the American Psychiatric Association's 
Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. That's kind quite a, a mouthful. It is, it is a mouthful. Um, and there have been uh, tons of books coming out about this. Um, it's a very controversial publication. Um, the last one was published in 1994. That was the DSM-4. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the version that introduced Asperger's to the world as a, as a classifiable diagnosis. Really? And, yeah. And one thing that's, wow. got, that's gotten a lot of attention about the DSM-5, which publishes next Wednesday on the 22nd, is the removal of, of Asperger's a mere 19 years after it was introduced. No kidding. So, yeah. so this is really interesting because this is the book that psychiatrists and therapists and doctors use to diagnose people with mental health conditions. And so it's a little odd to think that you know, these conditions can come into existence and then vanish again just because it's written in a book somewhere. Yeah, exactly. And that's what has a lot of people troubled. I mean, even up, in, up until 1973, homosexuality was termed disorder by the DSM. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's clearly a fallible document. But it hasn't caught as much flack until now. I mean, like I've got five or six books sitting here that, that deal, and that's just a selection um, that deal with, uh, with the DSM five and, and problems with it. So you've got, so the six books and this is, I mean, we've seen various trends in medicine and in, uh, uh, you know, self-help books, but, but you've got six books that are talking about this one document that's going to be coming out this week and they've already had access to it then. I mean, they're talking about the problem of the model in general, insofar as psychiatry right. is um, is like a century behind the rest of medicine in terms of mm-hmm. relying on hard data for its diagnoses. And the, the two main books that are coming out, or two of the books that a lot of people have been talking about lately, yeah. are um, Alan Francis's Saving Normal and Gary Greenberg's The Book of Woe. So you're asking, how do they know about all this stuff? How are they writing about this? Alan Francis was the head of the um, the committee that put together DSM four. Gary Greenberg was a psychiatrist who was approached by the makers of the DSM five to weigh in on its production. So they both have insider access to a certain oh, extent. Right. So when are these books coming out? And tell us about these two books then. Most of them are coming out in May to, to coincide with the publication yep. of DSM five. Um, right. A couple are a little late in the running. Really, really generally, Alan Francis is essentially saying that. He totally doesn't agree with, with where the DSM is going, but he thinks until there's a better option, we need it because we, need, we, we can't have patients lose confidence in the entire practice of psychiatry. Right. Gary Greenberg thinks it needs to be scrapped completely. He, he's taken a lot of flack for not providing solutions past that point, but he's kind of said, well, you know, it, it isn't necessarily my job to come up with a solution, but, you know, I'm pointing out a, a viable problem. And the National Institute of Mental Health, just a, a couple of weeks ago, Rose, you sent me that link to the article. Mm-hmm. Um, the director of the NIMH, Tom Insell, announced that the NIMH is no longer going to be relying on the DSM for grant awarding criteria. And specifically for directing its research, uh, which has a lot more effect on ordinary people than it sounds. I mean, that that sounds sort of very obscure, but it really influences things like how you determine whether a drug is considered effective, for Mm -hmm. example. And another important thing for a lot of people is whether or not insurance will pay for that drug. Right. Right. Is this a a recognized um, disorder or disease? Right. So the National Institute for Mental Health has said, I, I think uh, reorienting their, uh, themselves away from the DSM was kind of a euphemism for saying we're, we're not going to really be worried about that too much anymore. Um, but they, they put into place plans to develop what they've called a research domain criteria, or RDOC. And they're hoping to essentially do what the DSM attempted to do, but basing it on empirical evidence, you know, neuroscience and, and biology. And a lot of people in the field think that's a very, very lofty goal, if not an impossible one. But, well, that was, that's sort of always been the goal in psychiatry. There was this idea that the DSM was going to be a stopgap until we could just do scans of people's brains and figure out exactly what was wrong. And it's just the science of the brain has really uh, been a lot slower in developing because the brain is so much more complex than anyone had any idea about you know, 30 or 40 or 50 years ago. Yeah, exactly. I mean, some of our you know very basic organs are incredibly complex, not to mention the brain. But even um, Dr. Robert Spitzer, who worked on one of the earlier versions of the DSM, admitted that there's basically no biological reasoning behind these things. It's primarily, um, he, he spoke about that to James Davies, the author of Cracked, which is coming out mm from Pegasus in August, but he said there's essentially no biological bases for these disorders. It's primarily professional consensus, agreement, Mm -hmm. and um, interpretation of studies conducted 
or, you know, patients talking about their experience. So with the Greenberg book, if I could just see that right there, it, it's the title is The Book of Woe, The Making of the DSM and the Unmaking of Psychiatry. So how does he address what the woe is of the title in regards to this? Both Alan Francis and Gary Greenberg um, write a lot for uh, you know the Huffington Post or Psychology Today or they maintain blogs or things like that. And there's a very heated, fun debate to follow back and forth. And one thing that, uh, that Gary Greenberg says on his on a blog post from just, mm-hmm. I think, last week. You know, I think the the woe derives from what this is doing to the profession, but mm-hmm. most importantly to the to the patients. Right. Um, and he describes it on his blog as such, um, that, that this kind of, uh, what a lot of people term diagnostic inflation, has spawned a drugging of the population that is going to look to future historians like the lead contamination of the Roman water supply does to us. Mm. So wow. he's obviously very dramatic. I mean, he yeah, also that's, quotes... that's a major comparison. Yeah. He also is... Uh, he, he loves quoting Melville throughout the Book of Woe. So he, he definitely has a flair for the dramatic, but to great effect. It, it makes reading about the, psych, the psychiatric profession entertaining. Right, sure. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with PW Reviews editor Sam Slayton about the DSM-5, which is the manual that tells your psychiatrist how to diagnose you or not, and uh, some books that are coming out that are discussing it pretty much for a lay audience. Is that right? I mean, these really aren't books aimed at doctors. They're books aimed at people who want to understand this stuff better. Yeah, they're definitely for lay audiences. I mean, you have there's bound to be... uh, literature uh, published about this that is going to be primarily for the professionals. But I think this is both for, you know, it's primarily for the patients. Mm-hmm. And then it's also for the psychiatrists to say, you know, we need to, uh, we need to do something to better substantiate our profession. You know, it behooves us all. You know, so there's a lot of talk of the foundation of psychiatry being built on air. And so that, that, that's kind of dealing with these fundamental issues. But then there's also the issue of big pharma putting a lot of money behind, you know, they, they have a, a vested financial interest in the continuation of the DSM because to put it bluntly, the more people that get diagnosed means the more people that get medicated means the more medicine they sell, Right. which is not to say that, you know, manufacturers of drugs should not be, you know, turning a profit and making, making a living that way. But these but, things need to be balanced. But they need to be balanced. Right. And um, a lot of people see it as just uh, gross overreach in terms of doctors feeling beholden, to uh, big pharma to prescribe their medications to the detriment of patients. So tell us a little bit about uh, the other books that you've got piled up there that are coming out regarding the DSM and uh, these hot topics in mental health right now. Yeah, so a lot of them are kind of saying similar things. And so it's hard not not to think, you know, as enterprising as pharmaceutical companies are in terms of developing drugs for the newest disorder, there are a lot of psychiatrists who seem to think right now is a really good time to publish a book. And, and as I said, there has been an enormous uptick in, in the past few months in terms of these books. Some, somebody else who has who is weighed in on the debate via a blog on psychology today um, is Nasir Gaimi. And um, he's the author of A First Rate Madness, Uncovering the Links Between Leadership and Mental Illness. And he has a new book coming out called On Depression, Drugs, Diagnosis, and Despair in the Modern World. And while Greenberg and Francis and James Davies in Cracked uh, kind of attack these really tangible problems in the psychiatric profession. Uh, Gaimi kind of takes a different tack and in, in, in works in more of like a philosophical understanding of the psychiatric profession and how doctors and patients can, can view their own mental illnesses or disorders or, or issues right. and, and how to kind of attack them with a, like a three-pronged attack. Therapy, medication, and also introspection philosophy and expanding our understanding of happiness to include as our reviewer put it, lower introspective states, Hmm. um, which is kind of, again, a nice way of saying, you know, feeling really bummed out or whatever. That can be a part of happiness, right? (laughs) Right, right. Because it makes you appreciate your happiness a little bit more. Yeah, there can definitely be times when you sort of indulge in that melancholy because coming out of it feels so good. Yeah, and and there are times, of course, when melancholy, as in the case of grief, is is a very useful thing. Mm -hmm. Um, It doesn't necessarily warrant uh, an immediate diagnosis and definitely not medication. It seems like with uh, a lot of these books, uh, there have been a crossover that at least I've seen. I don't know if you've seen this too, in his, with history and kind of how-to or self-help within the same kind of book. You know, in, in one book they're talking about the history of it as well as self-help uh, applications. Yeah, I think some. Of the, I think that blend is what characterizes a lot of the more successful books for mm-hmm. a, for a lay audience. Right. 
you know, talking about the history, I, I think makes makes people who are coming to these books who are who are hurting and in need of help feel as if they are speaking with someone who is a, a, a knowledgeable about the subject. They know where it's coming from, where it's going, right. but also that's combined with practical self help exercises. In Susan J. Noonan's Managing Your Depression, What You Can Do to Feel Better, uh, she does a good. She offers a good blend of this in terms of really practical, um, brief exercises and um, and self assessment metrics that people who are in the midst of suffering from depression can use to help them get a better hold of it. And right. she suffers from de- depression herself. Um, and so people do want, I think, a blend of this, you know, the personal touch and also the professional touch. She's a practicing psychiatrist. I think if you get too much one or the other, you're, you're missing uh, a really valuable way of, of, of approaching these, these disorders mm-hmm. and working with them. Right. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with PW Reviews editor Sam Slayton about some interesting books that are coming out regarding mental health. And specifically, we've been talking about a couple of books on depression. It's interesting to me that these books are both uh, both on depression and managing your depression are both published by the same publisher, and it looks like they're taking slightly different angles. So is, is this just sort of an attempt to capture a broader section of the market? I think so. You know, it's, as you said earlier, just in terms of talking about the the brain's complexity it's Mm -hmm. it's a very physically complex thing and also you know there's there's a whole nother element to it that does entail uh talk of of philosophy and and religion and 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 beliefs you know Mm -hmm. not just neurons yeah so so you're right these both are coming from john's john's hopkins university um and, and gaimi interestingly enough blames kind of this the proliferation of diagnoses of depression on postmodernism and (laughs) Yeah, wow. which, which I, I need to get further into it to be able to, <laughs> to, to speak uh, knowledgeably about that. Uh, but also this notion that, uh, that God is dead. You know, he feels like our culture has become unfocused. We don't have a, a center. We don't have um, a place where we can look for guidance. And so what he does is kind of lay out what he thinks the problem is. And then he, he looks at a couple different um, thinkers over the past century mm-hmm. and, uh, and posits them as guides for helping us kind of to overcome this malaise on an individual and on a cultural level. So they definitely take very, very different texts. Noonan is very concerned with the individual who is, you know, maybe has to go to work mm-hmm. and, you know, go to lunch and go to meetings and do right. this and that, but is also struggling with depression. Mm-hmm. And so what can you do to, to deal with that? We'll take 10 minutes out of your day and work through this test and, and see how it can affect you and things like that. And it looks like with the uh, Nasir Gaimi, the uh, drugs uh, on depression, drugs, diagnosis, and despair in the modern world, it seems to be a tag you know, to, to take in uh, philosophers and thinkers from, uh, from history. And, and it looks like there's another book you have there, uh, Hippocrates Cried. I don't really know anything about that one. Okay. Well, so, so, but in any case, it looks like there's another one that's just kind of uh, referring to Hippocrates to the philosophers. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of them say, you know, we have to, uh, we do have to go back to the remember the Hippocratic oath that the first oath of right. a doctor in any in any field mm-hmm. is to do no harm. A lot of these psychiatrists feel like the profession is doing more harm than good, right. and there are ways to fix it, but they are extremely large scale problems which will require large scale initiatives to to solve them. Speaking of the National Institute of Mental Health. Uh, decision to to reorient themselves away from the DSM. Francis called it in a private email to Gary Greenberg, which Greenberg published on his blog. So as you can see, again, Greenberg doesn't dislike drama. Um, <laughs> Francis called wow. called that move boneheaded, and and Greenberg called it called uh, the research domain criteria initiative harebrained. Um, and, uh, and you know, Francis said, we're going to need more than bloviating statements to, uh, to usher in a paradigm shift. But again, how do you do that? It's, um, it's something that people don't seem able to address. At least, uh, you can credit the National Institute for Mental Health with trying to move in that direction. So is there any kind of consensus on what mental health is and, and what the goal state is here? I mean, no, nobody, as far as I can tell, even seems to have quite got that far only that we haven't got it figured out yet yeah i mean and i think that's uh evidenced pretty well by gaimi saying you know we need to start thinking of happiness as able to to have some sadness in it you know mm-hmm. so what is mental health what <laughs> right. what, what is normal right. uh, you know to reference uh, alan francis's title saving normal you know i i think uh it's like people say of pornography you don't know it 
you don't know how to define it, but you, but you know it when you see it. Right. I guess you know it when you feel it. And, and that's all well and good to talk about that. But um, I, th- I think that's where a book like Susan J. Noonan's really comes, mm-hmm. uh, comes in because it kind of it stands back from the, this grand debate which needs to happen and, and lets you readers ask, uh, ask questions of themselves like, am I getting enough sleep? Am I eating right? You know, am I isolating myself? These really, really practical things to help you get towards what I think the general consensus of mental health and happiness is. So looking at a, uh, let's say a publishing perspective, here we are, we've got, uh, this book, several books you've, you've got, uh, coming out just in time for the uh, DSM coming out. It looks like there are already two of them. Uh, you mentioned the Greenberg and the Francis that are going to be just by virtue of the fact they've already had public debates are going to be the books are, uh, and authors are going to be battling each other and probably battling for, for a lot of, uh, newspaper and magazine space as well. It seems like these, by virtue of that, these seem to be the biggest books on on the topic coming out. Absolutely, especially when you consider Greenberg's blog presence. He's writing about this constantly. Right. He's very, very passionate about it, and they both are. As, uh, as Ben Nugent, I believe it was, characterized them in uh, Slate magazine, he, he described them kind of as, as taking a cue from Greenberg's citation of Melville, he describes them as, as Ahab and Ishmael, where um, <laughs> Francis right. is, has this white whale that he wants to slay, which is you know, the, the work of his successors with the DSM-5. And Ishmael is, uh, or Greenberg is, is this bemused out observer who nevertheless has some scathing things to say about the whole hunt. We've been talking with Deputy Reviews Editor Sam Slate. Sam, thanks so much for that roundup. Thank you. It was great. It was really nice talking with you. Always a pleasure to have you on. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. And you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. If you want to hear your question on the air next week, just email it to us at pwradio at publishersweekly.com or tweet it at pubweeklyradio. That's pub, W-K-L-Y, radio on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. Tune in next week for more excellent book talk right here on Sirius XM Book Radio Channel 80. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show.